when we sold the deal, you know, I think we paid five million for the deal and we were able to sell the thing all in for, I mean, I believe it was almost 20. Um, so it was a, wow. a huge value add. The investors, there was no dilution in the equity because we were able mm -hmm. to, to finance the construction with debt. Uh, bottom line, I think we were projecting, you know, kind of high teens returns and we ended up exceeding that fairly substantially. We've got Neil Walgren from Mag Capital Partners. So Neil, welcome. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm, before we start, let me give a little bit of our disclaimer. So the contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice. And neither Daniel nor John or Neil is engaged in the provision of legal advice or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants, regarding the legal, tax, and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. Okay, so with that out of the way, we're going to get started here, uh, hearing about what Neil does in industrial syndications, and uh, I'll turn it over to John. All right, great. Thanks. So yeah, Neil, can you tell us just a little bit of background about yourself here first? Go ahead, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... First off, you know, I, I know you guys and a lot of your listeners are, are expats from Japan. I, I also had the, the pleasure of living in Tokyo for about four years. So um, my, my background, I'm a, a California native, uh, currently live in San Francisco, but uh, lived abroad and in a lot of other places um, for about a 10-year stint flying, uh, flying C-130s for the United States Air Force. So oh. part of that included a, a four-year stint in uh, in Husashi over in the Tachikawa region of Tokyo. So oh, cool. uh, I got Great. to uh, fly out there, and I mean, really do do uh, resupply and, and airdrop all around the Pacific and a lot of uh, you know Middle East and uh, Europe support and South Pacific, and uh, yeah, it was really interesting experience and you know, really one of the early ways that I, I connected with you guys. So. Oh yeah, great. And and so um, when you were doing that, did you start investing while you're still in the military, or was that something that happened after you got out? Kind of. Um, so I flew full time with the Air Force, and then I got out, uh, moved to California, and actually joined the Navy um, and oh. flew the same plane, different uniforms for the Navy Reserve. And during that stint, uh, it was kind of interesting. You know, a lot of the guys I was flying with there. You know, some flew full time, but most only flew part time and then had outside jobs, whether it be in you know, commercial aviation or some guys were financial advisors, just a, a host of different, you know, quote unquote, normal, normal jobs. Uh -huh. they fly on the weekends or, you know, a couple of days a month. Um, but while I was in that community, really got introduced to, you know, kind of the investing side with real estate. A lot of the guys were really into it. Um, a lot, lot of hours at autopilot and <laughs> flying yeah. over the ocean where you <laughs> got some downtime to, you know, just talk about side hustles and what people are doing. And, uh, that was really my first introduction and read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and really started doing some early investments, both in single family and then syndications uh, somewhat early on. Okay. And when you started in syndications, you were a passive investor early on or did you jump right into the... Um, you know, starting your own syndication. 
Yeah, no, no, certainly a, a passive investor first. So I started okay. on that side and then eventually worked my way up to, you know, being on the general partner sponsor end of things where, you know, we're actually putting together deals and raising capital here with Mad Capital Partners where I'm at. Okay, great. So um, I, I guess, uh, let me just ask you this. So, you know, obviously you were in the military for, at least four years act uh, uh, full time active, and then you were a reserve for how many years were you reserve? Uh, so it was about ten years full time, and then about uh, oh, three or four years, years uh, flying part time with the Navy. Okay, and so I, I would assume that the many of the things you learned in your military career or developed during that time may have uh, influenced uh, your investing and you know your job that you currently do. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Do you do you feel it? It, uh, enhanced uh, what you do now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought about it the other day, you know, kind of cataloging, you know, one of these broad picture, you know, looking at your your different life stages, I guess. And um, I think the two main, you know, really carryovers from the, the military aviation life to, you know, really running commercial real estate deals, probably the biggest one is, is what I call checklist discipline. Um, and that's what uh -huh. we call it in the pilot world. But I mean, you're really, you're, you're taking kind of a, a complex action and whether that's, you know, taking off a multi-crew aircraft, doing something somewhat advanced and technical, and then, you know, ultimately bringing it back home. I feel like a lot of that complexity, but repeatability exists in the real estate side. Um, so really, you know, I'm involved mainly on the capital markets and that's, you know, raising capital and, and debt to effectively fund the investments we get under contract uh, in the real estate side. I really have these very, very long, you know, somewhat uh, detailed checklists that I still use very methodically. And after each deal, I, I modify them and, and improve it, you know, in a very similar way that I used to do in aviation. Um, so okay. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. Probably the, the, the biggest takeaway. And then the second one is um, what, what we used to call ORM or operational risk management. And on, on the flying side, really, there's a, a ton of risks in, in flying and even more risks in flying, you know, in combat environments or doing airdrops or low level flying. And, you know, we used to really take a lot of time sitting down before we ever even walked to the aircraft and said, all right, which which risks do we have control on and which don't we? And, you know, mm -hmm. you look at your controllable risks and say, all right. Which of these can I mitigate? Which of these can I remove? Are any of these known risks too big to elect to actually go fly today? And and those, we'd spend a lot of time identifying those and then kind of identifying which risks we can't control and just saying, all right, you know, our training, our prep, you know, hopefully will leave us in a position. There's enough margin of error here that we can handle the unknown. And I think a huge amount of that carries over to the real estate side of identifying what you know, identifying, you know, what risks may come in the future and how you might deal with those. And, you know, really a lot of continuity. Uh, yeah. There. Very interesting. Yeah. So, so definitely like your pilot career, your, your job as a pilot has carried over into your investing career. That's awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you mentioned that you were, uh, you started off with um, passive investments here. Was that your, your, as a beginner, was that your very first investment? Was like, a, was it a syndication? And we'll get into what a syndication really is later. But can you tell us a little bit about um, when you first when you first got it started um, investing here? What was that specifically? 
Yeah. So, you know, maybe to take a step back, um, just a you know, quick uh, definition of what a syndication is. Uh, syndication really is a, a process of typically raising capital from a number of different funding sources to effectively invest or purchase, um, you know, some investment grade thing. Uh, it's quite often used in real estate, but you can use it for, I mean, everything from business ventures to royalties to IP tech. I mean, anything really. And it's just this idea of pooling together smaller amounts of capital to have a large amount of capital that you can deploy on, you know, more, more uh, expensive endeavors, if you will. So that's that's the uh, the type of uh, way that we raise capital at Met Capital, and you know, our investment partners. You know, there's some W two earners who are you know working every day. There's uh, business owners. There's professionals. A lot of doctors, lawyers, surgeons. You know, really people that have a specialty. Um, they're they're very good at that. They have income coming in, and they want to put that income to work, um, and mm-hmm. they will elect to you know effectively piggyback on the expertise of you know different sponsors that are putting together investments, and they come in as a, a passive investor position uh their capital will come in along with sometimes you know several dozen other investors in a project and all together you can you can take on something larger and you know potentially more nice yeah i'm you know i mean you uh you know my background a little bit uh neil but i you know i started off with direct investments and as time has gone on and uh you know uh my lifestyle changed a little bit where I didn't want to be so involved with uh, the direct investments in both residential and commercial real estate. And I moved on to uh, mainly investing passively in syndications. And I really liked the model. And I found you guys, Mag Capital, uh, mainly because I wanted to diversify a little bit out of residential because all my other properties Mm -hmm. are either multifamily or single family houses. And one thing I started to see kind of the writing on the wall was, um, you know, there's a lot of social issues that are involved in that residential investment. There's a lot of people that are not very happy right now with landlords and and this whole process. And I thought it's still a great investment, but I want to diversify out of that to things like industrial and self-storage. And I found you guys. Um, And so I was hoping you could explain to us a little bit, you know, go a little bit deeper into industrial investments and exactly what you guys uh, do at Mag Capital uh, so our listeners can understand that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Mag Capital Partners, uh, my firm, we we buy specifically single tenant net leased real estate, um, largely in industrial real estate with manufacturing tenants. Um, sometimes it's helpful to sort of paint a picture of what one of our deals might look like. Um, so we buy a lot of Midwest properties, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, all the way up to Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, kind of in that central range. Um, and our, our tenants are typically, you know, long tenured manufacturing companies. Most of them have been in business 50, 60, 70 years. They've usually been in place, um, you know, in the locations we're buying for at least a few decades. Uh, and they're, they're really, they're, they're just long-term operations. They're parts manufacturers. We have autom- probably four or five deals that are in the automotive space. Um, we also have aerospace parts manufacturers. We have high-density foam manufacturers, uh, frozen food and or- organic food producers, a lot of white, white label 
producers mm-hmm. where they, uh, you know, we will buy real estate around a company that produces, for example, one does um, uh, hair and skin products and they will, their customers are consumer brands like, you know, Revlon mm-hmm. and Nivea who will come to them and say, Hey, we need, you know, half a million gallons of this anti-wrinkle cream. You guys have mm-hmm. all the, the vats and the bits and everything to, to make this, you know, lotion, you know, and, and they will, they'll make it, they'll even brand it for that consumer customer. Uh, and what's great is it's usually behind the scenes. You know, a lot of these are mm-hmm. B2B type of businesses. Most consumers yeah. never either see them or even know they exist. You know, consumers are just used to what they see on the shelves. Um, and so we'd like to be one step, kind of one step removed in the, you know, whole product food chain from the, the consumer level good. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really interesting because there's, you know, usually when you're investing in real estate, you're investing in the real estate, but here mm-hmm. it seems like there's another component at least, you know, and maybe even a more important component, which is the business itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, really from a comparison standpoint, you know, in a, in a multi multi-tenant investments, whether it's a multifamily, like an apartment complex, or even like say a strip mall with a bunch of retail centers or an office building, right? In any of those scenarios, you know, you, you're going to look at the the quality and the credit of your tenants, but more so you're looking at, you know, kind of the aggregate occupancy overall, you know, and you might mm-hmm. buy it, say at 80% occupancy. And maybe you think if you invest some money in the project and increase marketing and put some new countertops on, you might be able to increase that occupancy up in a single tenant model that occupancy really it's binary, right? You're either fully occupied or you're not. And so because of that, the, the, the credit behind your tenant, you know, really the financial viability or boil down their ability to pay their rent obligation. That is what you are effectively underwriting around. That's the main risk. And you're coming in more on a defensive play in industrial because you you have a fully occupied building. It's typically a very long-term lease. You know, we're usually putting in a brand new lease when we buy the buildings, usually 20 years in term. Uh, There's built-in annual rent bumps. So every, every year the rent's going up. So everything's going to plan and you would just really, you're effectively doing analysis to make sure you feel comfortable with the tenant and feel comfortable that they're going to pay the rent on time. And if you do your job right, it's very consistent monthly income being produced in a you know highly predictable above market fashion. Mm. Great. Interesting. So, yeah. So, Neil, did you you mentioned earlier before we started the podcast here that you had a, a, a short uh, slideshow presentation Um I don't know if you wanted to jump into that one to kind of explain in detail to some of the listeners here uh, specifically what what Mag Capital Partners uh, is involved with, and, and mainly, I guess, the difference between, um, I guess, what I would consider standard syndication, which would be like multifamily uh, 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 homes here, um, versus what Mag Capital Partners is focused on, which is more so with uh, industrial real estate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me pull it up here real fast. Okay. Let me know and let me know when you can see it here. All right. I think we are, yeah, we can see it now. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, um, you know, we'll have a, a kind of brief overview of the company, but more so this is going to talk about, and I'm going to try to make this educational. Um, so, you know, really okay. talking about the industrial asset class, you know, Matt Capital Partners, we're, we're one of, you know, a handful of groups that specialize in industrial. 
and what we'll talk about really are, are kind of core asset type of um, you know, descriptors to try to educate on, hey, this is a, a whole different asset class of real estate to invest in. So, um, you know, first, a, a little about us, you know, as a firm, we have about 45 investment properties under ownership. Um, roughly, this is actually a little old, or I think we're about 360 million total in assets under management. Uh, we've also bought and sold an additional about 20 buildings at this point. So have a, have a track record. Uh, we've been around about eight years um, and uh, have a very niche focus on buying really single tenant net leased industrial. So one, one important thing, there's kind of two ways to invest in both syndications and or you know, commercial real estate in general. You're typically going to see direct investment or a fund. So a fund is, you know, effectively you put money into a, a pool and then a sponsor is going to use that pool of, of funds to buy and sell real estate how they see fit. Um, the alternative to that, how we do it, is direct investment. And that's where each deal has its own kind of investment opportunity. You as an investor are investing in a particular project. You know exactly the real estate that you are investing in. Um, and just, you know, kind of a different model, uh, but gives you a little more control as an investor and, you know, what you want to put capital into. So the way we buy these deals, uh, and this is going to be similar, you know, multifamily is going to see the same office, uh, largely the same as buying a home, right? You're going to get a commercial real estate loan, usually 70, 75%. And the balance would be your quote unquote down payment. That's going to be the equity. And that's where, you know, the pool of, of an investor funds and sponsor co-invest is going to come from. So uh, talking a little bit about industrial, uh, you know, a lot of people have heard about industrial, maybe not quite fully understanding what that asset class entails. Um, so there's there's three main types of industrial. You have on one hand what's called flex industrial, and that's going to be smaller spaces, usually long buildings with a bunch of high bay kind of truck docks. Um, each space might be around 2000 square feet. You're going to have like tire shops and welding shops and storage units and, you know, a mix of that usually subdivided amongst a long building. Uh, and that's going to be more similar to say a multi-tenant retail building. So you're going to have property management, a lot more ins and outs of short-term leases, um, you know, and it's ran a little different. Uh, the second type is what we're in, and that's more of traditional manufacturing and warehouse. So just think, you know, more large square footage, four, four walls and a big roof, maybe some overhead cranes. Um, and it's much more, you know, universally usable warehouse space. So you can use it for storage. You can use it for a number of different manufacturing uses. Uh, and then the, the third kind is going to be what they call specialty industrial. And that's think of like pharmaceutical or you know, a lot of uh, oil and gas will produce and need very specifically tailored industrial real estate for their particular industry. Um, uh, and then really, you know, the industrial space has seen a nice couple of years, largely just because there keeps getting more and more demand on a finite supply of, of buildings. So, mm. you know, really new, new replacement cost is about 3x what the cost of existing buildings are. Um, so there's really a, a high demand on, on what exists out there today. And, you know, as people bring manufacturing back to the U.S. from overseas, just because 
you know, cost-wise, it makes more sense to bring it back home now. There's a lot more e-shipping where distribution centers and, and storage hubs are needed. So all those are putting demand pressure on the industrial space as a whole. So the, the lease relationship with your tenants uh, in the industrial space in the single tenant structure are typically what we call triple net leases. And triple net leases are kind of magical in a way if you're on the, the landlord side of things in that you've effectively structured a, a lease with your tenant where the tenant pays all their own expenses. So they're going to pay their own property tax. They're going to pay their own insurance. They're going to pay their own utilities. And on a, on a single tenant deal, usually they're paying all building maintenance as well. And that includes like roof replacements. That includes new heating and air, pavement repair, new paint. I mean, literally 100% of the costs normally associated with real estate. Now your tenant is paying them and not you. So, I mean, just I always like to compare that to you know imagine you own like a, a single family rental property i mean imagine if you somehow got your renter to you know pay for you know new carpet and pay for new paint you know window replacements mm -hmm. I and mean, that would be the equivalent and uh, it really it only works because the leases are so long term so you know it's mm -hmm. like a 20-year lease so it makes sense for you know your tenant to say all right you know i'm willing to pay these large building costs because I know I'm going to be here for such a long time. Uh, and then we, we actually, our model for buying real estate is kind of a subset uh, in what's called sale leaseback. Um, so we typically, we will buy the real estate from a manufacturing firm that operates in and owns the building that they operate in. So what typically happens is they want to pay off debt or they want to expand or grow or a number of different uses. And one, one way they can basically withdraw funds is by selling the real estate and turning around and leasing it back. So they go from an owner to a renter and we go from a buyer to a landlord. Um, so it's kind of an interesting exchange. Uh, and that's really kind of our focus on how we get opportunity in the industrial space. And I do this if you guys have questions or um you know any any comments on here you know happy to you know, obviously um you know kind of deep dive okay, into sure. any pieces that you find interesting okay um so uh, one question a lot of people always have is you know why would someone do that you know if you own your mm -hmm. building why would you want to be a renter um, and that's a super fair question in the residential space, it usually would imply, you know, if you owned a house and said, oh my gosh, like I need money, I'm going to sell my home and rent it back. Like, that would usually be a sign of financial stress. In, in the commercial world, it's a little different. Uh, usually what's happened is these companies are, are very successful. Usually they've just been bought by a private equity backer. And that private mm -hmm. equity backer says, I'm laser focused on growing the operational side of this business. I'm less interested in owning what they call low performing assets like real estate. So, you know, they're looking for large three to five X multiples on their investment. The only way they can do that is really shifting assets into ways that they think they can get a better internal return on investment. So they sell the real estate, lease it back, take that capital and reinvest it into, you know, new manufacturing lines, new headcounts, paying off corporate debt, you know, a number of different ways to, accelerate the growth of that new company. 
So uh, I, I do have a question about that with um, the sellers. Do how, how do you find the sellers? Are you actively looking for sellers and that's how you, it's driven by you guys as mag capital or the sellers kind of know who to go to in the industrial space and <laughs> contact yeah. you? It's, it's a great question. So, you know, you have kind of two mechanisms of buying. You, you can do a sale leaseback or you can do what's more common is, is a stabilized acquisition. The stabilized acquisition is where you, you have a, a building, there's a tenant in there and there's a lease in place and the new buyer effectively buys that building and assumes the lease wherever it's at. Right. Yeah. And that when we sell, you know, we're selling a stabilized asset to the next buyer. So, however, executing a sale lease back is kind of a much more nuanced transaction because you're mm -hmm. negotiating price of the building. And at the same time, you're negotiating terms of that lease and you might negotiate how long it is, what the price per square foot is, what the level of rent, rent bumps are. So all those factors require, you know, really a, a, a very good understanding of sale leaseback and not many people have that skill set. So really most brokerage shops will have, you know, even if they have say a thousand brokers, you know, national, national brokerage firms, they might only have, you know, five or six sale leaseback brokers. So it's a very, very niche submarket. Uh, Dax Mitchell, who founded Mac Capital, he came from that background. Most of what we get are all off-market deals from other sale leaseback brokers. Uh, and then sometimes if we execute on a deal that was backed by a private equity group, if that private equity group buys a new portfolio company, often they'll just call us direct and go, hey, you know, we had a good experience on the last one. We just bought this new company. Uh, these guys own their own real estate. We're looking to sell off some of that real estate. Let's do make a deal. So that's that's how we get a lot of our deal flow in this in this space here. Okay, great. Um, so really, you know, that triple net structure of that lease, where the tenant is paying all their own expenses, what that results in is a extremely predictable set of cash flow. So basically, the rent comes in. We pay the mortgage to the bank and everything left over is highly predictable and distributed out as cash flow. So with that model, we're able to, I mean, honestly, tell you even three, four years from now, I could tell you within a few pennies what the operating account will probably look like just because of that consistency. Um, and really, that's the that's the allure. That's the attractiveness of the triple net structure. So investors love it because you, you really you've eliminated you know, we talked about the the known risks in the flying world. These are the known risks in the real estate world. I know you're going to have tax surprises. I know you're going to have building surprises on, on the maintenance piece, but I've removed those known risks, given them to my tenant and said, all right, these surprises will still happen, but now that your surprise is not mine. And because mm -hmm. of that, yeah. you know, I, I end up with a very predictable set of cash flow. And really that's the you know, kind of core anchor, core foundation of this investment type. Interesting. Yeah. So Neil, I've got to ask, like, if there's, there's going to be pros and cons to every single investment here. And um, excuse me, you mentioned some of the, obviously the the pro, one of the pros would be the fact that you've already got, you, you see, you've got a hundred percent occupancy from day one with immediate cash flow. Are there any negative aspects to this uh, going into yeah. Uh, industrial I, real estate investments. I would say, especially from a comparative standpoint, our mm -hmm. 
upside is more limited than say a, a big value add, say multifamily project. So, okay. you know, a, a, a skilled operator who picks the right deal in multifamily, if they can execute their deal, execute their business plan, you know, they have the potential for, you know, potentially higher upside in the, you know, in the industrial space, we've limited our downside, but on the flip side, we usually, you know, a great deal might hit, you know, kind of low twenties uh, or mid twenties on a percent return basis. Whereas, you know, a multifamily operator who knocks it out of the park could probably hit 30 or 40%, you know, on a, on a great deal for their investors. So your upside's more limited, you know, it's much more predictable. Um, so, you know, you're kind of uh, trading off your upside in return mm -hmm. for a very consistent downside protection. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and I tell people, you know, most folks have, you know, should have a little bit of room for both. Um, you know, you mm -hmm. should have that kind of core cash flow month, monthly distributions from, you know, a, a deal like, like industrial or a similar asset class. And then on, you should also have some riskier bets where, you know, you're taking on development projects or big turnaround value adds and, and those, you know, there's more variability in how they'll end up, but you know, if they hit big, they hit really big. So, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, really across the board, kind of any commercial real estate, uh, you know, one of the major advantages is you're producing income and that income is, is going to be tax advantaged. So not only does the income from that real estate flow to investors, but the depreciation, the tax losses also flow to investors. And typically that depreciation is going to fully offset any tax liability from that income. So while, while you hold that investment, uh, all or most of that distribution is going to be effectively tax-free from an IRS standpoint. So that's, that's uh, you know, you're going to see that in rental houses. You're going to see that in multifamily, industrial office, uh, you know, really any sort of uh, real estate investments. Uh, so one, one question we get a lot is, all right, you know, how, how are you building value? You know, how, how are you going to sell this thing at more money than you bought it for? Uh, it's a fair question, you know, especially with that triple net lease structure. Um, so really there, there's several categories. Uh, the first is we always get long-term fixed rate debt. That just allows us to know every month we're, we're paying the bank, we're paying down that, that debt principal. So when we go to sell, we're going to owe less on that loan than what we took on. Uh, the second piece is you have built-in rent bumps. So, that, you know, it's not a, a gamble. Hey, do I think I can raise rents, you know, say for a bunch of multifamily tenants? Instead, the lease is already in place. It's already signed. Every year I know with, you know, perfect certainty that that rent is going to increase usually about 2 to 3% a year. So you have progressively increasing cash flow. Uh, and that cash flow directly correlates to increasing uh, net operating income. Uh, and then finally, from a sale leaseback side, when when uh, a sponsor is the architect of that sale leaseback, basically negotiating and putting in place a brand new lease, there's value in being the executor of that new lease, strictly because you know we're putting, for example, like a 20-year lease in place we can hold that building for four or five years and still have 15 years left of term. So now that, that has a lot of premium. That's a long-term lease still. And really anything above 10 years is considered very long-term. So now we have a, a number of different buyers who would want to or find that long lease term 
attractive. We're looking for that consistent yield and income. Um, so we, we can sell at a relative premium because of that. And you can see, you know, a second buyer might hold for five years, sell to a third buyer. In fact, they, they might sell to a fourth buyer, you know, long before any sort of releasing event will ever come up. So, you know, we've effectively taken that releasing risk, pushed it way down the road, not our issue. You know, someone else will take that on down the road. And you might go into this a little bit, but you're you're saying your holding time is usually about three to five years for mag capital before you pass it on. Is that what it normally Correct. is? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And we did that intentionally, right? And a lot of it's mm -hmm. honestly just having options. So, you know, I have a 20-year lease. If three to five years come down the road and I don't know, let's say some black swan event happens or the economy is in bad shape, if my tenant's still paying rent, I don't have to mm -hmm. sell. You know, I yeah. I can just keep paying distributions. We can comfortably sit on that. I don't have to worry about my my tenant, you know, deciding not to renew their lease. All all that, you know, basically avoidable risk I've avoided. You know, I've moved it yeah. downstream. And honestly, I could hold that for 10, 15. In fact, I, we could hold 20 years, right? Yeah. Uh, and I know, you know, all the way down the road, you know, and granted, I'm, I'm going to lose some of the premium value as my lease winds down. You know, the closer mm -hmm. you get to zero, the more risk there is for the next buyer. So they're going to want a lower price because of that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I can hold for a while and still be able to sell for an attractive price. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and then, so one interesting thing that really relates and drives pricing in the single tenant model is credit. So, I mean, imagine, um, you know, I use an example. Let's say you have you know, two buildings right next to each other, right? They got the same lease in place, uh, same dynamics. Um, but on one, one side, you have Wally's Home Goods, right? And on the other side, you have Home Depot. Uh, which, which do you think you'd pay more for? Home Depot. Home Depot, for sure. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the reason is Home Depot, is, it's bigger. And I know with a higher degree of certainty, Home Depot is going to pay their rent, right? I mean, Wally's, they, they might be great. You know, I might go golf with Wally on the weekends. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's more risk. It's just a smaller shop, right? And they probably have lower lower income coming in. There's more risk on, you know, what if Wally dies and his son takes over? I, who knows, right? A number of different things creates more credit risk in Wally's and Home Depot. However, if I... If I buy Wally's and let's say five years go on and let's say Wally's gets bought by a private equity group and Wally's grows from one store into 15 stores. And now Wally's is doing 200 million a year in sales. Now suddenly Wally's looks a lot more attractive, right? Uh, mm. So everything else remaining the same. Funny enough, Wally's is worth more money now, but correspondingly because they're a stronger tenant, now my real estate has actually uh, appreciated as well. So having a stronger mm -hmm. credit tenant actually helps the value of your real estate. So you're able to effectively reduce the risk and sell at a premium because of that. Uh, I'm going to skip over this here. Um, let's talk a little bit. Of, yeah, we talked a little bit about the holding. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the, the capital structure, not just for these deals, but for really most syndications in this space. Mm -hmm. So as a passive investor, really, there's, there's two ways you're making money. One is cash flow through the form of either typically monthly or quarterly distributions. And that's while you own the real estate, your tenants paying rent, and that rent goes to the investors. Um, 
And then you have on the back end, you have your profit. So typically when you sell, uh, you'll have a return of capital. So whatever you put into the deal, you should get that returned. And then everything left over is treated as net profit. So the net profit, the sponsor will pre-agree on a certain split of that profit. Uh, and usually what we do, and which is fairly common, we give 80% of that profit generated goes to the investor group. And that's kind of divided out pro rata. And then we take 20% and that's our effectively what they call sponsor promote. So that's our reward mm -hmm. for building value in the deal. Um, and then when we sell, um, following that, you know, effectively that wraps up the, the deal. We dissolve the LLC. Um, and then what most people do is take that core capital piece that was returned and sometimes with the profit and we'll reinvest that into a, a new project. And that's you know, kind of a way to just keep the investment cycle going and continue to grow wealth. Great. And I, you may actually, uh, talk about this. I, I hope I'm not, uh, jumping the gun, but, um, I guess one of my, one of the questions I hear quite often is, um, you know, how do I put this? Like, so when we use something like a waterfall structure, which, uh, you know, where you have these sort of thresholds, uh, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, if you guys as mag capital perform at a certain level, there will be, uh, you get a, a larger amount of money from, you know, a larger return. Um, so there's these incentives for you to do well uh, for me mm -hmm. as the investor. And I was wondering, is there anything structured into the your deals like that? Or um, Yeah, yeah, we, we do. And so, you know, typically you'll have a, a standard waterfall and then you'll have what's called hurdles. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can view the, the number, the calculations behind them, very similar to tax brackets when you're looking to pay your taxes. So you'll usually pay a, a smaller amount of taxes until you make a certain amount of money. And then everything beyond that will be at a higher tax bracket and sometimes even beyond that further. Uh, very similar on a back end return structure. So, for example, our, our model we, we give uh, do an 80-20 split, so 80% to the investors until we hit a 18% uh, per year return. If we're able to deliver 18% a year, if there's money left over still to go out, all future dollars after that 18% get split 50-50. So it becomes more a more even split with the sponsor once you've kind of hit you know, a success metric, which we, we define as 18% there. So that, you know, most sponsors will have some variant of that, sometimes multiple tiers. Um, it really just depends on, you know, what the sponsor puts into it and how much work and how much risk is involved. And, you know, in general, it makes sense to incentivize your sponsor to work for those outsized returns, you know, in the form of, mm -hmm. hey, you know, they share more equally in, in that upside. Yeah. And I, I know one thing our a couple of our, we, you know, we operate a Facebook group and we've had this interaction with some people that have never done syndications. And one thing they're worried about because they've heard from the index fund uh, investing uh, side, you know, you don't want an active manager because you're, yeah, maybe they're going to say that you're going to get 10% or 18%, but then there's all these fees on top of it. But of at least with syndications, you know, it's a little bit different because those 18% returns are after any sort of fees, those are those fees yep. are before that, right? 
Uh, so was exactly. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, the way, the way we do it and the way most sponsors in syndications do it is all, all the return projections and all the hurdles are going to be net of fees. Mm -hmm. So really there's no... There's no surprises afterwards. There's no, you know, basically degradation. Um, ultimately, there's predefined fees. Uh, and the way most sponsors get paid are in three categories. You have upfront fees, usually an acquisition fee, um, which will be a percentage of the purchase price. And that's really designed to kind of cover pursuit costs, cover overhead, keep the lights on, keep your paid. Uh, the second is going to be your, your ongoing residual income. Uh, and that can look a lot of different ways. Um, our main source of that is through what we call an asset management fee. So of the rents that we collect, we take 2% of those rents and effectively take that as income. And we use that money to cover tax analysis uh, or tax form prep to, to cover our credit team who's uh, doing quarterly uh, credit review of our tenants, um, and, you know, just kind of those ongoing costs. And then on the, on the back end, all, we don't do any fees. Uh, on the back end, it's simply that that um, profit split that we talked about. And that's that's the majority of how we we make money. So, and you want to see that you want to see a sponsor be what we call back end focused or back end incentivized. If the way a sponsor makes the most money is you know by seeing a deal through completion and having you know, success on the end. If your sponsor is making the most of most of their money there, that's a great model because that means you know they are very much in line with with your incentives as as an investor. Mm. Great. Um, so you know, we we look a little bit more on the risk side, um, and this is always kind of interesting. You know, it's it's easy to you know kind of think, all right, you know, where where can things go wrong? And you know, one one nice or potentially scary thing on this single tenant model is it's very identifiable, right? You're again a very kind of a binary risk where either your tenants in business, they're paying the rent, or they're not. And there's not a lot of in-between. So because of that, uh, you know, you really have to devote a lot of resources on understanding that risk. But if you do your homework and you know you feel good, you know, these tenants have been usually in business. 60, 70 years, you know, and really you're just analyzing them and going, all right, do I think they're going to be able to stay in business another five years and keep paying the rent? And that's, that's effectively the gamble, you know, the bet that we're making when we go into these. So, so we, we always do a, a, and this, what I'm talking about here with credit analysis, this will apply for any sort of single tenant deal, whether you're buying a Wendy's or, you know, a single tenant retail shop or, or an industrial building, whatever that might look like whether you're a single single investor or, you know, a passive, um, you know, syndication investor in either scenario, the risk is the same. Um, but yeah, you want to do a very deep dive into your, your tenant credit. Uh, most of our tenants are privately held, so they're not public. So we actually have a three man team full-time in house where their only job is doing deep dive, Working with the executive team, the CFOs, looking at audited financial statements, um, unraveling mergers and acquisitions so that they can get a very clear view of what the true kind of economic performance of a company has been over the last usually three to five years. So that we're looking at that. And then uh, we're also coupling that with the value of the real estate. So in a worst case downside scenario, we end up with an empty building. We want to make sure that the price we paid for that building 
that we feel good about the market, that we feel we would be able to release that building. Uh, and we, we want to make sure that we structure the deal where we think we could get either at or close to or maybe better than the original rent that we had on the project. Uh, and then how do, you, how do you mitigate some of that risk? Um, so one of the biggest ones, we work in tenant quarterly reporting uh, requirements. So our, our tenants, these manufacturing companies, they are actually required per the lease to submit quarterly financials to us. So that includes balance sheet, you know, full financial summaries, uh, debt load, et cetera. And then once a year, they have us audited financials. So we actually, you know, we're not just buying it, crossing our fingers, hoping, you know, they keep paying the rent. We're actually every quarter kind of watching the ebb and flow and, you know, really the, the progression of how that company is doing over the time that we own it. Um, we talked about that due diligence piece, you know, all that work down up front. Uh, and then really the strength of, of that triple net lease. Um, so that triple net lease, again, all those unknown building maintenance expenses, we take them off our plate and give them to our tenants. Um, the fourth is we, we have a executed business plan. And what I mean by that is we're not going in buying the building and saying, all right, let's start work. You know, we've already done the work. You know, the work is is mm -hmm. largely contractual. There's nothing to be done now. The work is done. And now you just simply are in, in a defensive mode saying, all right, I have a performing asset. I'm happy. I have cash flow. And now I just really want to want to make sure it stays that way. Uh, and then the last one is, is sponsor skin in the game. So again, this is going to be important for any investment, but you want to make sure your sponsor feels joy the way you feel joy and feels pain the way you feel pain as an investor <laughs> i it's the only way i know how to boil it down but yeah. you know if they have their own money in the deal preferably more money in the deal than you do that's great because that means if the deal goes south they're going to use every tool in their their toolbox to you know, write the ship they're going to you know, sometimes make loans to the to the project or, or pull outside favor, whatever it takes, right? They're going to use their mm -hmm. set of professional skills to, you know, do what they can to, to get that deal at a minimum to return capital to investors and, and themselves for that piece that they co-invest in. Um, one, one thing I will say, too, is uh, pay attention to the debt being put on the property. There's recourse and non-recourse debt. And sponsors who take on recourse debt, that means they're signing personal guarantees to the bank uh, on that debt they're taking on. So a sponsor who's signing personal guarantees has a huge amount of personal incentive to make sure that deal is, is successful. Mm. Um, we talked a little bit about the, the types of, uh, of tenants that we, you know, we find in the, in the manufacturing space. And we talked a little bit about you know, how that deal flow kind of originates, especially mm -hmm. in the, in the sale leaseback world. Um, here's, here's a case study. Uh, we can come back to this if we want. This is an aerospace parts manufacturing deal that we did out in Texas. Um, and then here's, here's a little bit about the company. Uh, but if you want, we can, you know, kind of roll it back into more of a, a Q and a, and, um, you know, kind of see yeah. where it goes. Great. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Neil. Um, so sure. I'll stop sharing that screen at that point. There we go. Um, yeah, so I, I've got actually um, a few questions here. And Daniel, I don't mean to jump in here right away, but you, um, 
you you showed that one uh, I, I don't have the screen up here, but there was one uh, one particular asset class or not asset class that you had there, but one particular property that you had there. Can you talk about anyone that was like a really memorable experience that you had um, from that came away from one of your investments? Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll bring that one back up. That was okay. a case study. Let me know if you can see this here. Uh, yes, I think it's yes. up now. Yep. There we go. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually the one I was going to talk about. So uh, this was kind of interesting. So we, we came in very kind of bread and butter. There's an aerospace company called Gamma Aerospace, uh, located kind of uh, about 20 miles south of downtown Dallas, so in, in the DFW metro. These guys have been around 50 years, supplied to Boeing, Lockheed, Airbus, uh, Bell Helicopter, L3. I just made it. Actually, funny enough, they they made parts for the C-130, the Hercules that I flew. So um, it was it was fun. It was it was my first building. Uh, this was back in 2016. And it was the first time I got to do really a site visit for industrial. And I remember walking the grounds and they, they had a lot of land, which is kind of normal. And they had you know, a number of buildings, all sort of one property. There was like five different buildings. And what was interesting was I said, hey, you know, how, how committed to this site are you? And they said, you see that machine? It was a big, long machine. And, uh, you know, they, it was making um, wings for aircraft. Uh, so just, I mean, imagine the size of equipment that you would need for that. And they said, uh, we literally, they had to pour concrete. They had to, to basically bring in this machine and assemble it. And then they had to build the building around it. <laughs> so wow. like, we would literally have to deconstruct this building just to get it out if we wanted to. So, I mean, just when you talk about sticky tenants, that's a pretty uh-huh. sticky tenant. You know? <laughs> One that would literally have to deconstruct the building to get their, their equipment out. But, um, but yeah, we loved it. And so they were getting... Uh, bought out by a private equity group and the private equity group very similar said hey we want to grow this building we want to grow headcount or this company uh and so they we did a sale lease back with them so we bought the real estate we leased it back 20 year absolute triple net lease rent bumps and what was kind of cool is uh about two years in they they were growing they went from i think it was like 40 million in sales up to almost a hundred million in sales within two years. I mean, hugely wow. successful. And the CEO come, came to us and like, look, um, we got a problem. We're like, we're out of, out of room. We need more space. And what's kind of cool about industrial is most of the time there's a surplus of land. Not always, but a lot of times they're, you know, they're not located downtown. So they'll have, you know, just have extra land. And um, that was the case here. And so because that triple net lease, we said, all right, you, you know, you got two options. You can either pay for an expansion yourself, which probably makes sense. You know, you still have 18 years left on this lease or we can develop it for you. And we have a full development arm and we can actually amortize a lot of the cost of that development, that construction into uh, basically a, a higher price per square foot rent. And we, we knew their credit had gotten better. And they elected to do that. So we basically, we went to our lender and said, hey, uh, we want to do, I think it was like a, a $10 million expansion. Mm-hmm. And the lender said, I love it. I love these guys. It was like one of their favorite projects too. They lended us 100% of the cost of that construction. Oh. 
before we even broke ground, we went to the tenant and said, all right, your rent's going to go from here to here. Uh, you know, I forgot exactly how much, but it was a pre-negotiated, pre fairly substantial increase in rent that would effectively be how they would pay back that construction cost. Um, and so we, we went and did it about nine months later. Uh, we were fully done. Actually, the picture here is the the expansion building that we built for them. So, um, you know, great, great A construction. Uh, they kept growing. And uh, when we sold the deal, you know, I think we paid five million for the deal and we were able to sell the thing all in for, I mean, I believe it was almost 20. Um, so it was a, wow. a huge value add. The investors, there was no dilution in the equity because we were able mm -hmm. to, to finance the construction with debt. Uh Bottom line, I think we were projecting, you know, kind of high teens returns, and we ended up exceeding that fairly substantially. So that was, uh, uh, you know, that was kind of a fun project. Everyone was really happy, naturally. And, um, you know, I can imagine, just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, and it was kind of neat because that that whole value add thing was, was really, I don't want to say it caught us by surprise, but it was kind of evolved, um, you know, organically. And it was a nice alignment of needs and wants. And we really, we've taken that model and, and used it. We're now, now we're much more proactive with our other tenants. Oh. Hey, uh, you're doing well. You want some more space? We'd be happy to develop it for you. You know, and they're like, oh, that's great for us. And, and for us as an investment group, it's fantastic because we're increasing NOI, which directly um, leads to, you know, value in your real estate. So, you know, really kind of balancing those pieces, providing service, but also, you know, building value for, you know, really investors and sponsor together i mean it's it's fun when when those things come together like that awesome yeah um i want to just jump in with going back to the investor because i as i said you know the people that uh are probably listening to this podcast in our group um you know are interested in being passive investors and i wanted to just ask you if you could break down like, you know, you've got a, a, a university professor here in Japan. He's an American citizen because we can start with that. Um, so make it simple. Uh, and he wants to invest in a syndication. What what are the minimum investment that does he need to make? How does he kind of evaluate the different deals you send him and things like that? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, to kind of take off my my real estate hat and put on more of, of the you know sort of investment and the logistics of that. Uh, there's going to be several things. Um, so most, well, let's back up a little bit. Um, the way most sponsors raise money is under a section of the Security and Exchange um, Code that's called uh, a Regulation D, and that's that's what kind of governs how how we raise money, securitization, etc. Uh, and within Reg D, there's really there's two main ways you can raise money. You have 506C, Charlie, or 506B, Bravo. Um, and so a 506C, Charlie, that's going to have the requirement that investors have to be accredited. Um, and you may or may not have heard this term before. The, the definition fluxes a little bit. But today, being an accredited investor means you have to have over a million dollars net worth outside of the value of your home. You, or you have to make more than 200000 a year or if you're married, more than 300,000 a year. And you have to kind of get an outside professional to, to validate that. Um, so if, if me as a sponsor, if I want to 
advertise my deal, you know, I can put it on social media, you know, really push this deal opportunity out to the world. If I do that, my uh, restriction is, is I can only take accredited investors um, into my project. Conversely, um, there's, there's the alternate option, which is how we raise money. And that says, we can take both accredited and non-accredited investors. Um, however, our restriction is we can only share a project with people that we have a relationship with. A relationship typically is more or less defined that we've had an intro call, we've talked about the model, talked about the risks involved, and now once you have that, you know, kind of kickoff call, then um, you know, a sponsor like us can add you to our, our deal list, and now we share that project with a very finite you know, limited crowd. And that's how we raise capital. And I would say probably about three, maybe two thirds of investment groups will do it the latter way where they, mm -hmm. they are just sharing within their network. Um, and then about one third will be more of that institutional model where they have big marketing teams and, uh, you know, can only take in accredited investors. So uh, to that point, you know, to your example, you know, really a, a great way as a new passive investor is to seek out and start relationships with sponsors so that you can start seeing deals. Um, and really, you know, I hate to say it, but that, you know, the best way to get a good understanding of which deals are good and bad are to start looking at them. You know, you have to mm -hmm. see deal flow, like everything, right? If I, if I've never seen a house and I look at one, I'm like, well, that's nice. You know, I have nothing to compare it to, right? You know, you have to, you have to walk the neighborhood. You got to see a number of different, you know, opportunities before you kind of start settling into deciding, Hey, you know, I like this. Um, you know, that's one piece. And I think the second piece, arguably more important than the value of, of a particular investment is really vetting the sponsor. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I think it's far more important to find a sponsor that you like, you know, find just someone who shares your values, shares your goals. Uh, and then once you kind of like settle in with a sponsor you like, then you start looking at deals um, and ask around, you know, ask people in investment groups, ask people on forums, go to real estate clubs. These are great ways. I'm um, just go to them and go, look, I'm interested in investing in this new asset class. Have you done it? If so, who do you invest with? Are you happy with it? Mm -hmm. Do they do what they say they're going to do? If, if uh, you know, if things start getting a little squirrely, do they communicate well? You know, how, how do they handle the unknown or unexpected? And really, you know, most people are more than happy to share their experience, you know, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great way to, you know, kind of do some early vetting and, and find, you know, who you want to start early relationships with. Yeah, that's the thing that I've found is that I think syndication, the key is the sponsor rather mm -hmm. than the deal or things. So I have a few friends, you know, they're usually these type A personalities and they're with a sponsor and they're doing their own due diligence. And I always say to them, like, you know, I mean, that's good. You should know how it's all put together, but you're getting your documents from that sponsor. So if you don't, <laughs> yeah. if you don't trust the sponsor to begin with, you know, what are you analyzing, right? You know, you're not yeah. going to have the resources or the access to get the actual documents. So I, I always say, you know, it really goes back to the sponsor is the first thing, you know, and then there's, you do want to do your own due diligence, of course. But, um, you know, that's the key, at least for me. Yeah. Right. So yeah. once you're, once you're in a deal as a limited partner, as an investor in this, uh, in this deal, you're, you're pretty much hands off at that point. 
right, Neil? You so, are so fully passive, yeah. <laughs> it, it's important. <laughs> it's really important that you do that due diligence up front with mm-hmm. the yeah. specifically with the sponsor here. Um, yeah. because then you're, you're just along for the ride, right. For about three to five years until you exit that deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are illiquid, right? So, you know, there's always exceptions, but in general, you know, your money's going to be tied up for a while. Um, you know, if you want out, you know, usually if the deal's performing, it's usually possible and easy to get someone else to buy your position. But, you know, if a deal starts going uh, a little iffy, you know, you just got to realize, Hey, your, your capital is, is going to be fairly tied up in that project until it, it exits. Um, and so again, for that reason, very important to have the right, you know, alignment with who's running that ship, who's driving that, that train. Um, you know, ultimately they are, they're in control. They have full management authority, which is great because you can be hands off, sleep easy, do your own thing and not have to stress over this, this investment, but you have to trust who's, who's in charge of it. Mm. Mm, and, and what is the minimum investment usually uh, with syndications uh, or at least with you guys? It's going to vary. Um, you know, some groups will be as low as about 25, others as high as about 100. That's the general range. Um, mm-hmm. Some groups I've seen will actually do tiered minimums where they'll have like a, a common set of terms with like a 50K minimum. But if you put, say, 250, you might get slightly preferential say profit splits on the back end um, you know there's the variety of structures is endless truly um, but you know typically yeah. that's the range you know for us personally we do fifty thousand minimums per project usually on the first one we're flexible we'll do down to 25 and the reason is you know i don't really care about i mean i do care but i'm less concerned on you know one investment in one particular deal you know we're looking for long-term relationships with our investors we realize hey, that the trust buildup is two ways you know it takes a little time you know most people even if you have a lot of net worth most people when they invest with us are going to do you know kind of just test the waters put the minimum amount kind of see how it goes do i communicate well do i mm-hmm. you know send out distributions when i say i will and that's that should be part of your due diligence really with a sponsor you know, start at a manageable level and then kind of grow over time as you, you know, build up trust and, and consistency there. Yeah. So those are some of the things you would, you would recommend, like if, if someone were to jump into this as a, as a newbie. Um, mm-hmm. So we said, do, do your due diligence first, because you're going to be along for the ride for three to five years, even possibly even longer. Uh, you also mentioned that, um, that, that besides doing the, the due diligence here, uh, they, they've got to understand that there's a minimum investment that's required here, right? So so that's mm-hmm. another thing to consider here. Um, is there anything else that, that you would like to touch on here for someone who's absolutely new to this asset class? Um, anything that they should consider besides those, yeah. those couple of things? I mean, there, there's a lot of resources out there. Um, I mean, the amount of podcasts are endless. Um, two, I, I actually... I kind of picked out two podcasts that I think are, are exceptional. Um, one is uh, the Real Estate Investing Podcast with a, a gentleman named Whitney Sewell. I was actually a, a guest with him once, but I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. I think he's very well spoken and has I mean, just a huge amount of expertise. He interviews and goes over and he has several hundred episodes, but uh, he's, he's fantastic as a way to just really familiarize yourself and start educating yourself on that space. Uh, and the other one, I, I just 
simply because of you know really the dynamic, especially with the two of you guys living in Japan, investing mm. in America. Uh, and there's a guy named Billy K K E L S who has uh, called the Going Lost, and he's an American actually who lives in Spain but travels all over uh, and he invests and really has a community of people who invest in America while living abroad. Uh, so kind of, I think he's just well-spoken and he really talks, you know, kind of irons out, you know, the core principles of syndications and passive investing, you know, really as a way to fund, you know, a lifestyle that you can be on the move and, you know, truly be, you know, kind of have that both financial and lifestyle freedom there. So. Cool. Good. Great. Um, I, I know we're probably, we're coming to the end here. Um, but I have, uh, an, one, one thing I wanted to add, which is as investors investing from, uh, abroad, one thing you do need to look into, and this is something that I've found is you have to look at what your local tax obligations are going to be. Um, in comparison to what are the benefits you're going to get in the U.S. So, you know, you talked about the fact that the LLC, of course, in the U.S. or these type of investments are passed through and you get these great uh, tax benefits in the U.S., but you have to see how that's going to play out in Japan as well. Um, one thing, we have a lot of changes this year. The, the way that real estate is taxed in Japan has changed. Um, and so it, there, uh, I've found that there may be some different ways, different strategies I want to take with my investments. So, for example, I'm looking to invest as an LLC probably in the future rather than my personal name because there's some benefits in Japan. I, I just wanted to ask really quick at the end there. So, you know, because I also know that's important for foreign investors. If you're not a U.S. investor, you may want to invest as an, as an entity like an LLC. And I was wondering, is there any advice you have for that? Is there anything you have to do to structure that LLC? Um, or is it just a matter of reaching out to your lawyer? Uh, I mean, probably more so reaching out to your lawyer. Um, you know, mm -hmm. those, I try to kind of stay in, stay in my lane on that side. But, um, yeah. you know, there's, there's a, a huge amount of, amount of expertise. Um, one, one guy... Uh, there's a guy named Mauricio, uh, who's, who's a fairly, um, I would say he has a, a fairly large footprint, um, you know, both in marketing and everything, but I've met him personally and, and guys really, you know, kind of look up to him and he's probably one of the better syndication real estate lawyers who can either okay. directly help you or send you the right direction. Um, and, uh, yeah, Mauricio. Raul, uh, I think. There we go. Raul, yeah. I believe. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. He did yeah, answer a couple of questions right. I had on this, but yeah, that's kind of what I was looking for is some sort of reference uh, that people could reach out if they did need to go that route. Um, but yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so uh, do you have any final questions, John, before we maybe. Well, um, I, yeah, I think we're, we're over an hour here and yeah, um, yeah I was just going to say, if there's anybody else, it doesn't have to be related to real estate investment or even syndications for that matter. But uh, anybody besides yourself, of course, Neil, um, who do you have the utmost respect for in the business world? Yeah, that's a great question. I was thinking about this in advance. Um, there's a guy who I've only met once, um, mm -hmm. but follow and, and have invested with. Uh, his name's Ken McElroy, uh, M-C-E-L-R-O-Y. And uh, 
I really like Ken. He's kind of soft-spoken. Uh, he does a mix of you know single-family uh, investments, uh, syndications, and some developments. But he's probably one of the most understated, down-to-earth deal makers that I've ever met. And, right, uh, right. and I really Isn't respect with, that. Um, Robert Kiyosaki, I think he works a lot. With uh, they they, they do some education together, yeah. And okay. uh, but uh, you know Robert's much more of a you know, he's, I don't want to say a marketer, but he's an educator first. You know, he, he, he has a personal brand, uh, Ken or Kenny, as he goes by, he's just, you know, he doesn't need the limelight so much. Uh, he really just loves just crushing deals. And, uh, I don't know, you know, I respect that about him. He's understated over delivers almost can always. And, uh, you know, when you find that personality type, just a great person, a great, to, to learn off of, um, to invest from, and, and honestly, just creating relationships and, um, you know, just a, a, a great person I've met in, in a way to, you know, kind of build that overall network and relationship. Yeah. And I, I think I've read both of his books. I think he's got two oh, books. Yeah. 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 And, and they're, they're great. They're, they're really good starter books, I think, for, uh, learning about, uh, real estate investing in general. I think it's, is it yeah. the ABCs? Is that his book, the ABC? I, I think that's one of them. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's, it's important. You know, there's a lot of, you know, self-described gurus out there. Um, my advice is find, find someone who's been successful at it first, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. make sure they're a deal maker first and an educator second. Cause I think, yeah, um, you know, that really there's, it's so easy to kind of just become a, you know, run a mastermind or be an expert without really being an expert, mm -hmm. uh, especially yeah. in the age of communication that we're in now. So really find someone who's made success for themselves and their core group first before they started becoming an educator. And I think yeah, those, definitely. that's a good starting point for finding good mentors. Nice. Cool. So yeah, uh, I think uh, we, as as John said, we're we're going over the the hour here. So really, thank you for your time. Um, we I, I know that you're in the U.S., so for us it's the morning, but you're probably we're taking up some of your family time <laughs> now. So yeah. sorry, oh, about no that. worries at all. So I'm I'm West Coast, so it isn't too bad. So. Uh, okay, <laughs> it's only yeah. six p.m. here. <laughs> we we forgot about the the time um, difference. The uh, because we don't jump ahead and back oh that's right huh? in, in japan right so yeah yeah we were on here at our 9 a.m we're like where's neil but <laughs> oh funny <laughs> i'm glad it wasn't the other way and i was an hour late right? so. <laughs> yeah. great so yeah excellent yeah so can we i'm gonna put this one up here is this uh is this where we can find you neil yeah yeah partners I mean, I... llc I'm happy to connect with anyone, either, you know, comments on the show or questions, or, you know, if you're interested in more about, you know, kind of learning about our, our particular investment model and investment group, um, you know, you can drop me a line. Uh, easiest way is probably email. Uh, it's Neil, N-E-I-L, at MAGCP for magcapitalpartners.com. Uh, or if you have a U.S.-based phone number and try not to call me at 3 a.m., but 925 uh, uh, yeah. 487 So, um, you know, love, love to chat more and uh, you know, just take it from there. Hopefully that one's right. And N-E-I-L at M-A-G-C-P.com. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Neil. Uh, this is our very first podcast here, <laughs> 001 for the um 
well, what we're calling it right now here is the Expat Fire Club. So I love it. <laughs> our our initial guest. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thanks for having right. me on, guys. Really, really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's great. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and end the live stream here. And um, we uh, we hope to have you on again as a guest again in the future here, Neil. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much. And everybody watching at home, we really appreciate you joining us. All right. I'm going to sign off Thanks. here. Okay. All right. Everybody, thank you very much. Goodbye.